The final words from Paul to his son Timothy are from a pastor to a pastor, the final words of wisdom. He's told Timothy to stand opposed to those teaching bad doctrine and to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere, sincere faith. Paul has reminded Timothy that he's been entrusted with the ministry like Paul was entrusted with his, that there are different roles for men and women in the church, that there are definite qualifications for all the various leaders. There's going to be a demonic doctrine in the last days that we all need to be prepared to fight if you are happen to be in the last days, which we are. Um, Paul has given charge to Timothy about how to be a good minister, a godly minister, a growing minister. Paul is giving charge how to treat older men and how to treat older women and younger girls of his same age. He's also helped him to understand how to deal with troublemakers from dealing with the slaves all the way to the rich owners of, that are Roman citizens. And we come now in verse 17, and he once again now in this chapter for the second time is going to talk about earthly riches. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The word command is that word of a general speaking the command to those under him. But it seems this time to be a much more tender thing, an element of a appeasing, of beseeching, of begging, with the hope that those who are the rich in Ephesus, which there were many rich Romans, no doubt, that were a part of the church, would hear this appeal and have and Timothy would have the expectation that they would listen on how to live as a wealthy person on earth. So command the rich in this present age. Our life is but a vapor. So if I were to make you a trillionaire for a fraction of a second, would you even know it? You're all trillionaires. Oh, not anymore. That's what it's like. And I, I've been around wealthy people, and they spent hundreds of thousands on special flooring, and they don't know it. It's no different than the poorest person putting stuff on their floor. They went and, you know, went to Europe and bought a special toilet. They don't notice it anymore. They've got great artwork, and it's completely invisible to them. Stuff just becomes stuff. You know, you got that new car smell, and then you despise it for the rest of the years because you have such a big payment for a car that, for a car you're already bored with. Yeah, this, this idea of being rich in this present age is not all what it's cracked up to be, but boy, does it have teeth to injure you. I'll tell you, interesting, I've spoken on this passage in many different countries and many parts of the world. And you know what everybody's reaction is, except for a very few times. Oh, you're talking about the rich in this world. That doesn't apply to me. You're talking about somebody else, some rich guy over there. I never find anybody this applies to. <laughs> Even millionaires. They're like, oh, I'm not rich. I know people that are got hundreds of millions. Now they're rich. The guy with hundreds of million going, I'm not that rich. I'm a billionaire. You know, a billionaire, I think he has to admit he's rich. <laughs> There's no trillionaires yet. Yet, give it another couple of COVID months and uh, somebody will be there. But it, it's interesting how everybody shrugs it off saying, oh, you're talking to the rich. I can fall asleep on this point. Well, let, let me ask you some questions. Do you make more than $2 a day? Do you have access to clean drinking water? Do you have running water? Do you have a toilet that flushes? Do you have a cell phone? Do you have access to the internet? You are the richest of the rich on earth if you have those things. And I think everybody here has to honestly answer, yes, I do have those things. 
you are the rich that the Lord was referring to. Here's another way of looking at it. Did you know half of the world's wealth is, is concentrated on less than 1% of the world's population? Here's another one. 20% of the global population possesses 90% of global wealth. For us in the United States, listen to this. We are only 5% of the world's population, but yet we consume 70% of the world's goods and services. I'm going to really blow your mind on this one. It's not in your notes. I, I just know this because of my own personal issue with pain pills that I had many years back. But 95% of all painkillers in the world are consumed by the 5% Americans. Grab that one. And we are we out of pain? We're all in pain. But yet, we consume 95% of the world's painkillers. Amazing. We know and desire for wealth seems to be hardwired in our culture. The idea of wealth and to get wealth and to get more wealth and to drive a nicer and wear the best and live in the nicest and it's, it's hardwired into us to want that. It, it's, it's almost like a, an involuntary muscle that's beating that we have to fight against. Being rich is definitely a compulsion. Someone likened riches to drinking sea salt, salt water. It does not quench the thirst, but only seems to increase the thirst. Not to mention drive you nuts. Wealth makes promises it cannot keep. It'll make you happy. It'll make you fulfilled. Sometimes wealth, instead of decreasing anxiety, actually increases anxiety. The pursuit of wealth sometimes places people in an awkward position of obtaining wealth in ways that are clearly not honoring God, unethical, shady. The preoccupation of the pursuit of wealth sometimes has a tendency to be controlling. And it controls one's life and often destroys entire families with that pursuit of wealth. Paul's phrase here tells us and puts it all into perspective. Command those who are rich. Those who are or those who are considered rich by comparison. So we're all here. We're not the rich. Somebody else is. But yet, if we brought the whole population of the world here and they sorted us all out by how much wealth we have, you, you do understand we're in the top, right? Everybody in America is in the top. So will you admit to yourself, we living in America... We are the wealthy of this earth. So this very much applies to us. But he says there that during this short time on earth, command them to understand that they are not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. We may have few riches now on this earth from our estimation, but we need to use our position, even if it's a widow might is all we have in order that we have true riches in the age to come. Remember Paul's words from earlier in 1 Timothy, verse 6 and 8. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we will carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So note that in my experience as a human being and living in America, I have found Americans to be very, very generous people. We do possess a lot, but they are typically very generous people. And I think the stats show that, whether you look at any of the international organizations that most likely started from America and today are supported mostly by American money, helping people literally on every continent of the planet. However, it's interesting that I've noticed in the church when we've had building projects or like this, giving to the missionaries, 
it's always the poorest people that seem to give the most. And I don't just mean what's relative to them. I mean literally in dollar amounts. People that you know has the least amount of money gave the most amount of money for somebody else who's poor and needy. The poorest giving to the poor. The poorest among us give the poorest building the building. And yet the rich people, it, I, I have been around people literally that are multi-millionaires and they write a check for $1,000 and they thought they gave a liver. They thought they gave a kidney. I mean, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know. They just made a million dollars this year and, and they literally cannot pat themselves on their back enough for giving $1,000. That's just the mentality. They really are in a darkness where even if they gave a little tiny portion of what they have away, they think they've done something great and interesting. You know, from my perspective, from where I've set in my life as a pastor for, you know, almost four decades, I've seen some pretty interesting things. I found that typically people are willing to share, willing to give, but it's the poorest still that seem to have the ability to write the checks or to give the money. Um, let's see here. It's like the book of James says, God's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. The second thing he commands them is not to be haughty. It's interesting that riches do make one haughty, or like King James Version says, high-minded. They think of themselves as special. I'm just going to throw this one here. I, me and Cheryl just were driving around. We're living in the OC now. We've been from San Diego, and we thought, oh, let's go see, you know, places we haven't seen really before. You know, just let you know if you're not from L.A., why in the heck would you want to come here? Um, you know, there's some pretty cool stuff to see. So, you know, we, we drove a few of the sites, but we thought, oh, we'll drive around Malibu. And it's true. Guys in $200,000 cars think that you should just get out of their way <laughs> because you are lesser than them, especially if you're in an old Prius. <laughs> you're, like, you're like a gnat that shouldn't be even on the road. But it, it is interesting. You, you can sense it. Like, you should be giving me preference because I'm in a Ferrari. I'm in a Lamborghini. Don't you see? I'm more important than you are. I'm special and you're not. So it's interesting that Paul here creates, the only time we find it anywhere in the New Testament, the word for high-minded. It's a unique word that Paul is creating where it is a pride that comes from possessions. Here's a great quote. This temptation, pride of possessions talking about, elates the rich to believe they are really are morally and spiritually superior, especially to the poor by virtue of their riches. Have you ever noticed Pride makes people artificial. Humility makes people real. Augustine said this, We all bow down before wealth. Wealth is that which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth. By wealth they measure respectability. It is our homage resulting from the profound faith that with wealth, he may do all things. Spurgeon said something loosely like this. We think wealth makes us truly different. This pride is a stab at deity. It is an attack upon the undivided glory of God. In what sense? In the sense that pride insists that we have something to glory in of ourselves. And God is not to share in this glory of ours. Yikes, that's scary. One wise rabbi said, Haughtiness towards men is a rebellion towards God. Also to command them not to just be haughty, but also to not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. 
That's the one thing when you have riches is understand it's uncertain. This is also a Greek term that is only used here in the New Testament. It's a special wordage for the fact that riches in and of themselves are not a God you can count on. I'm an older folk here, some other older folks here. But of course, after 2020, even the younger folk know. Things are uncertain. And whatever money you have today may be gone tomorrow. The rolling, the, the roaring 20s, where there was no end to success, but then the stock market crash of 1930s, the Great Depression, people throwing themselves out of skyscrapers because they had such great wealth and now they had nothing. Our parents made us clean up all the food on our plate and they would tell us, you must stuff yourself. So I'm really fat because of the Great Depression. <laughs> the Great Depression messed up my parents, which messed up me. But they said, you got to eat it all because there's poor people in the world. And really, it was a scar on our parents who were scarred by their parents saying, you may not get another meal. We don't know when the next meal's coming. So don't waste any of this. Eat it up and hopefully it'll last you. Maybe it may have to last a day or two. That never happened. But the Great Depression came such a surprise. They were eating, everything was fine. And then the next day they didn't have enough food to feed their family. It was quite a traumatic experience that they never quite got over. I saw the 1970s inflation where my dad who worked at Sears did quite well, lost his job, and it took months. And it was a horrible months trying to find a new one. I remember the mini depression of the 1990s down in San Diego County area. Everybody who had the great job, which is about 80% of our church in the aerospace, you know, making top dollar, big bucks. That thing completely collapsed. Roar, Teledyne Ryan, and literally almost every man in our church was out of work. And I was in the middle of building a new building, literally with my hammer, <laughs> building a new building. And the ladies would talk to me and say, my husband won't get out of bed. He won't even try to apply for another job. There's just nothing out there that even comes close. And I had to have a prayer meeting every morning at seven o'clock at the church just to get guys out of bed. And we did. We had a, a large group of people every morning. I, went, I would go down to the job site and get everybody going around 5.30, get back, pray with the guys and go back to the job site of building our first building. But then I saw that big number just sort of dwindle, dwindle, dwindle until eventually everybody got back to work. But we, we literally went from having more than enough money for a mortgage in our upcoming church building to literally our ties were so low that once we got our new mortgage, we didn't even have enough money monthly coming in to cover that mortgage payment. That was an interesting time going, how is God going to pull this off? But hey, some great stories I have out of that. Well, we've all been around for the 1990s big crash that happened, right? I saw on the YouTube yesterday that they estimate in another year, same exact crash is going to happen on the housing market. There's many other things. I, I can just tell you one thing. I think we can all agree, riches are uncertain, Right? And if you're thinking, oh, now that I got my barns filled, I can eat and drink and not worry about anything, uh, I think we know that's pretty foolish. David Guzik says this, God knows our tendency to trust in riches instead of in Him. He guards us against this danger because He wants us to trust in that which is most certain, Him, and not in uncertain riches. Gino Garissi says this, We should pay proper attention to this warning. In what ways are riches uncertain? On the surface, riches seem valuable, desirable, dependable. But the wealth comes danger. 
The danger is the temptation to trust the wealth rather than Christ. The danger in believing the lie that being a wealthy person really means that we are more beautiful, more valuable, more desirable than are the poor. Wow. Well, in verse 18 now, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Let the rich be good people, doing good things. The strategy from being haughty, independent, trusting in money rather than in God, here's how you do it. The strategy to combat that price, to combat that pride, to combat false dependence, is to be a generous giver. It's creating a community, a compassion, a mercy, creating an atmosphere which is godly. A willingness to share strikes at an effective blow against pride and self-centeredness. We should discipline ourselves to live with less that others might have more. That's the real thing, isn't it? Godliness with gain. No matter how much we have, do we really need it? Do we really need it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of embarrassing when people are cleaning out their garage and they have three of each thing because they forgot they had bought it twice before. Couldn't remember where they put it. And now you're taking stuff out of their garage going, oh, here's one of those, never came out of the box, never used. Here's another one, came out of the box, never used. And here's one that looks like it was used for about 30 seconds. Yeah, we do stupid stuff like that. Let's look at the phrase, ready to give, willing to share. Paul uses the word here, we know very well. The root of this word, I won't try to pronounce it, but the root of it is koinios or koinia. We get the word fellowship. It's literally saying when you give, there's an intimacy. There's an involvement that you personally have to connect. Do you, do you understand why this is so important? Because rich people will say, here's the check, just leave me alone. Don't let this eat any of my time or energy up. I'll, I'll give you twice as much so you don't ask me next year. I, I don't want to have to give my energy, my thought. I don't even want to have to spend the time writing it. Just contact my office and let my accountant write the check. I, I don't want it to eat into my selfishness. I want to think about me, and you're making me think about something other than me. This is why he says, you need to be rich in good works. You can't just write a check. You have to do something. Well, I'll, I'll pay for 10 guys to go do that. No. You go do it. And, and I've heard guys say this. Actually, I've got $20 million in the bank. And so 10% of that is like $2 million a year. And you break that down and, and it comes out to I'm making $300 an hour even when I sleep. So if you want me to go to that orphanage and to help paint that building, it would be stupid because I could be going to work making a whole lot more than that and then I could give it enough. So I could, I'll just pay for 10 guys to go paint the building and that would be better stewardship of money. But that's not what God is asking. God says, no, you need to give of yourself to the work, not just write a check for it. Interesting. Being rich in good works does not always increase the financial bottom line at the end of the year financial statement. But in the long run, let's not forget to God, you are the asset. You are the treasure of God's treasure chest. Listen, Giving is not a way of God raising money. It's a way of God raising children. Remember the Lord says, the earth is mine, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. 
God's not in need, nor can he even be in need. But yet he creates need, that men meet that need, that mature them, change them, grow them. Be ready to give, not ready in materialism. Great quote by David Guzik here on this ready to give. Many think the main reason for giving unto the Lord is because the church needs money. No. The most important reason to give is because you need to be a giver. It is God's way of guarding you against the greed and trusting in uncertain riches. God will provide for His work even if you do not give. But what will happen to you? Well, verse 19 storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Interesting, in 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul had just told Timothy, fight the good fight, and you, Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Grab onto eternal things. Live each day for eternity in mind. But now he turns around and says, Timothy, it's not enough just for you to do it. You need now to pastor the church that all the flock is able to do that as well, especially those who are rich among you. So my job as a pastor is to help everybody say doing things that have an eternal weight of glory is more important than the earthly things. And in reality, to have a loose grip that when I preach... And when I teach and what I say, an example of my life is to say, have a loose grip on earth stuff. It comes, it goes, our life's a vapor of time. You, you, you're so smart and so clever and you get all these millions of dollars and then you die and your idiot kids get it. Yeah, a light, a light grip on earth stuff, but a strong grip on eternal stuff. Could not be clearer said than how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said it. In Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth. Pretty clear there. Pretty, it sounds like a command, doesn't it? But, why? Because moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and still. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves break in and still. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, that's the key. If your heart is in your earthly things, then that's where your, or your treasure is in earthly things, that's where your heart's going to be, on earthly things. But the Bible says to have our mind and our heart on things above. Interesting little statement here, verse 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness explanation point? Now, not to go off here, it's just very clear from a Jewish perspective, the eye is always referring to giving or not giving. It's a Jewish expression. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 15.9, Proverbs 22.9, Proverbs 28.22, many other places. It's throughout the Old Testament. When a guy is giving correctly, the, the whole tithe, the whole 10%, above that of an offering, or a lamb without spot, without blemish, a true lamb that is the way it's supposed to be, then his eye's clear. His eye is good. His eye is healthy. When a guy's being greedy and not helping, not tithing, not helping the poor, not wanting to give a lamb that's completely spotless without blemish, but giving one that has a little bit of a limp or whatever. His eye is dark, unclear, bad. So he says here, what's really going on in a man's heart? He said, here's the litmus test. Your checkbook. D.L. Moody said, you can know more about a man's heart by his checkbook than his prayer book. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So Jesus says here, if your eye is clear, it's a litmus test. The whole body's full of light. But if the eye is bad, the whole body's full of darkness. So a person often will say this, well, I don't tithe, but I teach Sunday school. Well, I don't tithe, but I try to help out 
when I can, people I hear about in need. Go clean their house for them or whatever. In essence, they're saying, I'm poor, so I give of myself and my time, but I don't give of my money because I don't really have enough for myself already. And so I don't give money. I only give this instead. It's a trade-off. Or the opposite. The rich guy says, I won't give him my time, but I'll give him my money. Well, you can't pay God off with money. But you also can't think that God's not going to hold you responsible for not giving your money. Even a widow with one mite was still required to give, even if it was all that she had. Jesus breaks all religion of the world down into this one verse, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he also be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the God of money. So people tithe in their hearts full of joy. Oh God, I want to give above that an offering. And then they look at money going, I hate this filthy lucre. Hate having to pull it out of my wallet, that stinky stuff, and give it to the cashier. And, and they don't think about, oh, I want a newer car. I want a better clothes. I want a bigger house. They're just thinking, man, I just want to get out of here and go to heaven. And I, I just make that car run until it falls apart. I'll, I'll make do with the clothes I have, even though they're 10 years old. They look great. God sustained them like the children of Israel in the desert. Their clothes never wore out, so mine are too. I don't need the newest fashion. They're, they're just, their heart just, is just not on it. Here's, here's a bunch of stuff. It's like, yuck. I, I, I just want to get rid of it. I don't want to keep it. So they love the one. They love the Lord. They love the things of heaven. They love giving and serving. And they hate the things of the earth. Or the opposite. Oh, here's the pastor talking about money again. Money, money, money. Those bunch of guys probably, Brian's wanting to buy a new Beamer and it's really what's going on. It's the way those pastors are. Look at those short pants he wears. I bet they cost $30 each. <laughs> You're mad that I'm trying to get some of your cash. I'm angry about this pastor trying to get my cash. You, you love the one. You're going to hate the other, despise the other, cling to one, reject the one, cling to the one. It, you, you, your heart is revealed by how you give. Is you give a tithe joyfully or you give your tithe going, here's your money, God, I hope it really does some good. Bah! God doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. He never asks you to give a tithe because he needs it. This church here, we only want joyful money. Every penny, joyful ties, joyful offerings. We don't need it. God's our provider. He's going to take care of it. But if you have a joyful tithe to give, if you have a joyful offering to give, if you joyfully want to serve the children or joyfully with your heart of, of, of wanting to serve the Lord, want to help lead worship, then that's a beautiful thing. But if you're doing it because you got to do it, because nobody else will do it, and then there's something wrong. So Paul's financial advice, I should say eternal financial advisor, his financial planning seminar is this. Don't be haughty and high-minded. Don't trust in uncertain riches. Do trust in God. Do good. Be rich in good works. Do lay up your treasure in heaven. On the conclusion, not the conclusion of the sermon, just on the conclusion of this portion of the sermon on money, we learn one, this is the second time we've been reminded and warned that a person cannot trust in earthly wealth and trust in God at the same time. You're trusting in, if you start trusting in the money, you're going to stop trusting God. Wealth on earth can give a person diluted view of themselves and of others. Wealth at its best can only be held in a person's possession until he dies. A lot of verses on this. We have one in Timothy, but also Job says, Naked I came to the world, naked I go out. 
Um, Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ecclesiastes, um, and he came from his mother's womb. Naked he shall return to go as he came. He shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Wealth cannot buy the most important things. Here's the most important things. Wealth cannot buy eternal life. Wealth cannot buy forgiveness of sins. Wealth cannot remove a heart bitter towards others. Wealth cannot give one a good conscience. Wealth cannot give a good good night's sleep to a man who's tormented in his soul from a guilty conscience. Well, verse 20. Oh, Timothy. We hear the love here, don't we? We hear how parents want to be there with their kids. Oh, Timothy. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions, which called false, falsely called knowledge. We come back to where the whole book started. Do you guys remember that? In the beginning, Paul is warning Timothy to not allow this stuff to go on, but to stop it and not to continue. The word guard is literally like protecting an investment. Think about this just a minute. 27 books in the New Testament and two of them, that's God God speaking, were to you. Imagine Timothy. Do you think Timothy knew? I don't think he did at the time. But wow, God, his word, his DNA, God's eternal word written in a letter to Timothy. Powerful. But really, isn't it to all of us equally as powerful? Man, do you realize the wealth we have to guard and protect? The promises, the blessings of God? David Guzik says this, Paul had confidence in Timothy and Paul did trust Timothy. Yet Paul also knew how great the power of seduction is and how high the stakes are. So he warned and warned and he warned him again. So avoid profane and idle babblings, contradictions, which are falsely called knowledge, coming back around to say this has to end in the fellowship there in Ephesus. Remember chapter 1, verse 3 and 4? Teach no other doctrines. Give heed to, stop giving heed to those fables and endless genealogies. And now in verse 20 here, he says, avoid these profane and idle babblings, this common, irreverent, godless, idle or vain. It's, it's emptiness, meaningless. I, I like one translation. It's called empty voices. Kenneth Weiss calls it. They're contradicting. It's false knowledge. They make it sound like, oh, it's so smart. So intelligent. No police. Let's stop police. All police. No police anywhere. How brilliant. it's, It's so stupid. It's literally, you are a congressman? You actually have a college degree? And you say the most stupid things. They're, they're not, not even a, you know, a retarded child can be that stupid. But yet you're in the name of progressiveness or liberalism spouting such nonsense. The same in the church. People come up with crazy, stupid, ridiculous ideas. I remember the Church of Christ, they believe that they're the only right church and that you have to be baptized in their church to be saved. And, and I asked the guy, everybody who goes to heaven has to be baptized in the Church of Christ. And they said, yes. And I said, what if a person who is not a part of the Church of Christ baptized somebody, would it do any good? Would their sins be washed away? They said, absolutely not. And I said, 
The guy who started the Church of Christ, Alexander Campbell, who baptized him into the Church of Christ? Well, nobody. So he actually wasn't a part of the Church of Christ, but yet he baptized everybody who started the Church of Christ. Do you, do you understand, guy? This can't exist. Your church, by your own philosophy, has to be faulty. And the guy's just like, you're right. The guy who started our church wasn't a part of the church of Christ because it didn't exist. And he never got baptized in the church of Christ because it didn't exist. And there was nobody to baptize him in the church of Christ because it didn't exist. This is correct. So your guy who started the church of Christ himself, according to your definition, is not a believer. So you had a non-believer starting the church of Christ and running the church of Christ until he died. And it just dawned on the guy. I said, I can't be in this church. I'm like, yes, it's, it's a ridiculous contradiction, an obvious contradiction. The whole premise of your thinking is faulty and contradictive. So, Timothy, don't get involved with these guys. Flee evil and follow after good, he says in verse 11. Fight the good fight of faith in verse 12. Faithfully fulfill your ministry, verse 13 and 14. Warn the rich in verse 17 and 19. Don't trust in riches. Use it to help others. Reject godless philosophies of men. But guard those things that are worth so much. Sound words of truth. The gospel. Do you realize there is no greater wealth to all the humans in the world, but that one thing, the gospel of Christ. It's the greatest of any value. And you know what? It's infinite. I can give the gospel, and guess what? I'm not out. I've got a lot more gospel to give. It's literally like walking around giving people a giant gold brick of gold bullion. It's the greatest thing of wealth on planet Earth. The gospel, guard that, protect that, utilize that. The message of grace, salvation through faith in Christ. These are the things that are clear. They're not contradictive. They're full of good fruit. Let nothing cause you to deviate from the gospel message and the grace of God. The gospel was entrusted to Timothy, but guess what? It equally has been entrusted to every one of us who are believers, right? Verse 21, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So those people who are repeating it, saying these things, starting these conversations, causing confusion, they're not only causing themselves to stray, but they're causing others to stray. They're professing, they're speaking this false science, this false knowledge. These idle babblings are empty voices. Don't you be one of them, Timothy. And when somebody does it, rebuke him for spouting, repeating those ridiculous philosophies. Some have literally strayed from the faith. You know, the word actually in the Greek is missing the mark. They have missed the mark concerning their faith. Their faith isn't fruitful. I don't think it means they lost their salvation. I don't believe in that. But I, I do believe that they're not being fruitful. But I also think there's a clear road for them to come back. Once they see how they're missing the mark, they can turn around now and start hitting the mark. How many times have we heard the stories of people who profess the faith, raised in the church, sometimes high-profile ministries, like we've heard online and YouTube of lately, abandon Christ and the gospel. Why? Because they strayed. Unasked, unanswered questions. They're strained because of sexual brokenness, materialism, rationalism, communism, socialism, skepticism, scientism, liberalism, and every other corrosive philosophy diseasing and infecting the mind and the soul. We see that list growing longer and longer every day. Paul knew that these apostasies would enter the church. 
In Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. Also among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. How did Paul know that? Because this is what Satan does. I can say that. There's going to come a day. <laughs> God starts blessing our church. We're out preaching the gospel. Believe me, Satan's not going to sit on the sidelines once we start knocking on doors. Once we go into the neighborhoods and carol and, and tell people Jesus loves them, the demons are going to wake up going, hey, what's going on over there? I'll just pound that guy all next week. He won't know what hit him. He won't want to go out and sing and tell anybody about Jesus again. And I'll knock him silly if he does. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. No doubt Paul was not ignorant of Satan's devices e either. There are going to be people. You know, the, there was a guy who just went to church and was one of the members, and then eventually he started speaking this other truth and started saying Jesus wasn't God, but only Jehovah was. And, and then this guy eventually is talked to by pastors and elders, and eventually they say, if you keep talking like that, you can't come to church anymore. He doesn't go to church anymore. He starts the Jehovah Witness Church. There's another guy who is in church and talking to people and saying weird stuff and saying that he found some golden tablets and the real gospel, and off he goes with the Mormon church. Wolves have been around. This is how cults start. The David McGurians, the Jim Joneses. Okay? It doesn't, it's not a mystery who the wolves are, it's clear by what they're doing. I've heard people foolishly say, oh, well, I don't go to church anymore because I no longer believe in Jesus. I no longer trust the Bible. Or sometimes they just are more blunt saying, religion just doesn't work for me. People are, are hardened through these vain philosophies. I had somebody Sunday Say that very thing. Well, you know, you can't really know Jesus. I mean, I'm glad we believe in Jesus. <clears throat> but I don't think that's the only way to God. In the Bible, I don't think anybody ever really meant, excuse me, <clears throat> that anybody really meant that we can really trust it, literally. And then he does like three or four of these things in a row. And I'm saying, okay, let's stop. <laughs> Let's take the first one you said. And I explained it to him, how it has to be this way. You know, if you believe that God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross and he wasn't the only way, you have a horrible, evil God having his son tortured for no necessity. So either Christianity is about a loving father and a heroic son or Christianity is about the most evil two people, evil and stupid people you've ever thought of. You don't have a whole lot in between. And let's look at the other religions you met. And just going through it, sorting it out. It's so crazy that they actually got hardened, but yet going off to college and hearing these guys on YouTube and hearing their friends at the, you know, down at the beer hall getting their new daily beer, whatever it is. And they're hearing these unbelieving, little poisonous things that are falsely called knowledge, which in a second can be blown out of the water. But yet, they're there and they stumble people. Maybe you're one of those lost people right now. Maybe you're listening tonight and you're going, that's me, I quit believing in Jesus, I quit trusting the Bible. Go to our website, email me. I'd love to talk to you. If you've taken the path that was left you, has open sores and deep depressions, don't waste any more time on false teachers and false teachings. It's not too late. Turn around. Get back to the path of true faith. Get those questions answered because they're not hard. They're not big, insurmountable questions that are being asked and there never can be an answer to it. That's just a lie. It's untrue. Paul ends by saying, grace be with you. This trademark of Paul, this pleasant goodbye, 
but yet it marks really more importantly what great cost it took for God's grace to be so lavishly and freely flowing to us. Do you realize if Jesus didn't die bearing our sins, raising again, conquering our sins, there would be no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness flowing our way. But because Jesus rose from the dead, there's grace upon grace flowing to you. There's mercy unlimited to you. There's forgiveness over and 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 over. No matter how deep the sin, no matter how numerous the sins. Father, forgive me, yes. God, forgive me, yes. Over, it's flowing. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, patience, love from God is just flowing, flowing, flowing. There's enough grace for to sustain you. There's enough grace upon grace, amazing grace, all-sufficient grace because of what Christ has done for us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of 1 Timothy. And guide our hearts deeper into you, Lord. Guard our lives deeper into you, Jesus. We come and we realize what your word is to us. It's so incredible. Your DNA, your fingerprints right here in our own hands. Your truth that always will be true and never become anything but an eternal word of God forever and ever spoken to us right here and now. And Lord, we think of so many that did not heed this warning who continue debating and listening and repeating empty babble, empty voices, empty words, stupid things that sounded intelligent. They're not knowledge at all. The answers to those things are so simple, but yet they think it's rocket science in their little world of atheism, their little world of agnosticism, those little world of Eastern religion, trying to make it seem that Christ has to be impossible or Christianity has to be narrow-minded and and that you and your Christian church becomes evil and their new religious thoughts become really the truth that the whole world believes. We do know many are called but few are chosen. We do know that there are few that will believe in you. But Lord, we ask that none of us here would be turned to the right or to the left but guard all the things you've given to us. Protect them in the truth in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.